guys, and welcome to episode number 86 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for another Q&A. And before we get into the questions, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them onto your Instagram stories. Also, if you are interested in our coaching services, you can head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. The link is also in the show notes and our Instagram bios. We offer a range of services, not just for physique competitors, but pretty much anyone with a health and fitness goal. Fantastic. All right. So kicking straight into it with episode 86, this first question says, what are your thoughts on having a refeed day on a rest day rather than a training day? Cool. So this is a good question to start with. And for those that don't know what a refeed is for, it's basically a period of time, usually one day where... Uh, calories are brought up to maintenance through carbohydrates alone. Some people also reduce protein on this day as well. And essentially the goal of a refeed, uh, the difference between a refeed and a diet break, diet break is usually for one week or longer, whereas a refeed is typically one day. And essentially the goals are to uh, remove any diet fatigue and bring, bring up fullness by implementing more carbohydrates because typically you'll be quite flat, especially in, in an extended dieting phase and psychologically just have a day of higher food, which is always nice and potentially improve training performance on that day and subsequent days as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really looking for just that acute increase in muscle glycogen stores, you know, an increase in blood glucose levels and just kind of feeling better, right? Mm. But, you know, whether you have a refeed day that's just one day of the week or during a phase you're implementing multiple high days, preferably, you know, they're consecutive. So like back to back, you know, you have maybe two or three high days followed by four lower carbohydrate days. You can always implement those. But you know, what would be the difference there, Jack, actually having one of these days on a rest day versus a training day? Yeah, so for me, this is the interesting part because I don't think there would be much difference physiologically. Like, it's not like people have to remember that just because you eat a bunch of carbohydrates and don't exercise on that day, it doesn't mean it's going to turn into fat. It's just going to be stored as as energy mm-hmm. in the form of glycogen. So, and it's not like you're eating an insane amount, you're eating at maintenance. So yeah. you're not eating above what you can store. Yeah, so. I think that's such an important point to make because people get, you know, they forget that when they're dieting, they're in a deficit, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you bring your calories back up to maintenance, that's literally just an amount of calories that you would require to maintain your current body weight and your current body composition for that day, especially carbohydrates. Yeah. You're just increasing your glycogen stores, especially if you are flat and you know, you are going through a dieting phase, uh, you're going to fill out a little bit. Yeah. So in terms of the physical side of things, I think there really isn't that much difference having it on a rest day versus training day, because if you have it on a rest day, it's going to carry over to that training day. Regardless, if you have it on the training day, I mean, to be honest, arguably, Having it on the rest day, you would probably have more fuel for the next day for mm-hmm. training because you've got to remember that on the training day, you actually have to synthesize that glycogen, mm-hmm. which takes time. So yeah. not everything that you're going to eat on that day will go towards the training session, especially if you have a lot of the carbs in mm-hmm. the evening after training. Yeah, usually maximizing your glycogen stores, one, it comes down to the total amount of carbohydrates that you're consuming, and usually you need to be consuming them across consecutive days. Somewhere around, you know, it depends for everyone, but it probably could probably be between like 
four to 10 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight. So it's a hell of a lot of carbohydrates, but it can take up to 48 to 72 hours, right? To maxly synthesize your glycogen stores. So yeah, it might actually be smarter, you know, from a muscle glycogen standpoint, if you had those extra carbohydrates on your rest day, and then you trained the following day, especially that might be more strategic from a training and a muscle glycogen standpoint and really getting the most out of your training session if you train in the morning. Cause like if you were to have your high carbohydrate day on a day where you train in the morning, even if, if it's, especially if it's fasted, but also even if it's after breakfast, you've really only had one high carb meal. Like, is it really gonna make that much of a difference? Probably not from a muscle glycogen standpoint, but yeah, maybe blood glucose levels. But yeah, this is physiologically, but Jack, touch on psychologically. Yeah, so I think this is the more valid point for this question because anyone who's competed, like it would be a battle to basically do nothing and make your calories higher on that Mm -hmm. day. And like the thought of not using those calories and then more than likely you would wake up the next day with a higher body weights on on the scale purely because you've stored more energy so that would be the trickier part so it would be that trade-off being okay do i want to have more calories on my rest days potentially recover greater have more fuel for the next training session uh, but i won't be training that day or having my higher day on a day where i will train Mm -hmm. and ultimately i don't think there's enough uh, merit to either of those to really warrant there being a right and wrong. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's really going to come down to the individual and what makes them feel best, most physiologically and psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. So in your experience, you know, from yourself and also your clients, what do you usually implement? Do you usually implement higher carbohydrate days on training days or on rest days? Purely on training days for that psychological reason. Mm-hmm. And I would rather trial it for myself before I then give it to my client. So potentially in prep, I might trial it on a rest day. And to be honest, like so far, cause I'm doing a mini cut right now, those the, the rest days are actually the days where I feel the worst. Mm-hmm. So that might have some merit as well. Yeah, and that's actually gonna tie into a question we're gonna answer later too, right? About hunger and rest days versus training days. Yep. Yeah, but I'm, I'm the exact same, you know? Like give me a bunch of carbohydrates, like I'm gonna be bouncing off the walls and it's happened to me before, like, especially during diet breaks. So where you're, you bring your calories back up to maintenance, you know, for a whole week straight, purely from carbohydrates, fats and protein generally stay around the same, but just that increase in energy levels, man, you want to train, right? And even obviously in a diet break, even if you're training five days a week, you're still going to have to have two days where you're actually resting. I was actually like almost a little bit anxious on those days. Like, do you remember in prep, Jack? I probably wasn't even that pleasant to be around because (laughs) I was like, I had all of this energy, right? But I wasn't going to the gym that day. So I like, I had to expend it in some way or another. And I was kind of just like, a little bit antsy, you know, like a little bit on edge. And I'm just like, I need to do something with this energy, you know, like I need to mow the lawn or I need to clean the house or I need to go for a swim or I just wanted to expended in some way or another so and sometimes that can be a detriment as well because especially in a prep your body needs to relax yeah take the time to relax (laughs) when you can so consuming more energy and then just expending it Mm -hmm. you're kind of back to square one yeah but sometimes people with those adaptive metabolisms you know i think we both have those right when we have an influx of nutrients we have an influx of energy immediately our body responds like 
hey, dude, you have more energy. Let's expend this in some way or another. Like having elevated blood glucose levels, like you're literally like you, you've seen a kid with a bunch of sugar in him at a party. He goes hyperactive, right? So <laughs> it's kind of like comp prep competitors when you give them a bunch of carbs. But mm, I disagree uh, because well, typically towards the end of prep, even with a lot of carbs, you just want to lie down and chill out. I don't know. Not me. I want to mow the lawn. <laughs> I think you're definitely the exception, not the rule there. That's for sure. Thank God for high carbohydrate days. You certainly feel the difference between the highs and the lows at the end of the prep. But yeah, pretty much to sum up this question, right? I think it's really going to come down to the client and the individual, what they feel the best with. Yes, from a muscle glycogen standpoint, if they're training the next day early in the morning, they might get the more, more out of their training session if they had more carbs the day prior. But I'd say if you were training in the afternoon, right, and you were having a high carb day, if you had like the majority of your carbs prior to that training session, I think you'd store a bit of glycogen there and you'd get a good training session at night. So take that into account. But yeah, it's, um, it's a really about trial and error. What makes you feel the best physiologically and psychologically? Yeah, that's it. Cool. All right. So let's touch on this next question that we kind of alluded to. So it says, why can my hunger signals be so out of whack? For example, I'm not hungry on a leg day, but I'm hungrier on my rest days. So yeah, this is another interesting one. And I'm sure we've already, well, most people probably would have experienced it where they are hungrier on their rest days than on a training day. And I think part of it will again be psychological, Part a lot of it will be physiological as well. So what happens when you exercise is that you basically have a spike in the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response compared to the parasympathetic, which is rest and digest. So when the sympathetic nervous system is elevated, you have like a higher heart rate, blood is rushing to the exercising muscles, not the digestive tract. And therefore that basically, and the spike in adrenaline uh, also blunts hunger signaling. So that's why when you're doing intense exercise, vigorous exercise, heart rate is high you won't be as hungry and you'll see that once your heart rate calms down so maybe like half an hour after exercise or an hour that's when you'll say okay now i'm hungry i can definitely eat and that's the probably the main reason why but there are a couple other reasons like you like psychologically you could just be really focused on that training session and wanting to get it done and have a good session not your mind's not on food Mm -hmm. also typically when we train we have caffeine which blunts hunger as well Yeah, so I guess you could say there that exercise is an appetite suppressant, but it can also be an appetite distractant. Mm. Is distractant a word? (laughs) No, but it can be a stimulant as well, though. (laughs) Yeah, so, and it can stimulate you too. So again, it really just depends because some people find that, you know, they get hungrier when they exercise and I think that's mainly psychological, to be honest, especially if you're in a dieting phase and you're really looking forward to food. Like if you're in the gym and you're training and all you can think about is your post-workout meal, like I would argue that's probably more psychological rather than physiological. uh, Because like you just said, like hormonally, generally when you are in that sympathetic nervous system state, fight or flight, you're not necessarily like, man, I could really go for a big meal right now. But it's rather when you're in that parasympathetic nervous system state, you're calm, right? And hormonally and also just psychologically too, you're like, man, I, I could enjoy some food right now. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. So when when we describe it like that, I'm sure that makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I think one other thing too is just timing, right? Because we like some people, you know, like when you go to the gym, it can take a decent chunk out of your day. You know, you might dedicate a few hours to first your pre-workout meal, then you have a little bit of time, then you travel to the gym and you work out, then you go home. Like that's a few hours out of your day. But you have to remember that when you're on doing having a rest day, right? You need to fill those hours with something else. So again, sometimes I think the boredom hunger can actually come in too. Because if you're not dedicating like two or three hours to traveling and training and all that stuff you dedicate to a training day, you have these extra three hours in your day. And sometimes, you know, if you're not doing things to fill that time, you know, it's like food is a very pleasant thing to engage in. You know, it's wonderful to eat. It's a fun, nice thing to do. And I think we're all familiar with boredom hunger, you know, at some point in our lives, I'm sure. So um, that's another thing. You know, if you've got a bunch of extra time during the day, you're kind of like, yeah, I could eat. Yeah, we've all experienced that. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, hopefully that answers your question. So we'll move on to this next one. So this next question is basically asking about training in a cold gym and whether training in a cold environment have negative impacts on your session. So, for example, will will the stress on the muscles be the same compared to training in a warm environment? Mm -hmm. So we've touched on this before. We talked about, you know, training in the heat, training in the cold in in a podcast a little while ago. But basically, when you are in a cold environment compared to a hot environment, what's actually going to happen is that you're going to have a higher degree of vasoconstriction to your extremities. So vasoconstriction is basically the constriction of a blood vessel. So your major blood vessels and also your capillaries, they're going to constrict so that not as much blood can actually go to your extremities. And the reason for that is because when your body recognizes that it's cold, right, it wants to redirect heat and it wants to redirect blood to the vital organs in your core because that's the top priority to stay alive, right? But the thing is, is that when we're training, we're training with our extremities, right? We're training with our arms, we're training with our legs. Unless you're training abs, you're training your back, right? You're not exactly always training the core. (laughs) So yes, when you are in a cold environment, sometimes it can be really difficult to perform at your best compared to when you're training in a warmer environment. Because man, if you have vasoconstriction and vasoconstriction of blood, to the muscles that you're trying to exercise, you're not going to get as much blood to those muscles, right? You're not going to get enough as much oxygen. You're not gonna get the same amount of a pump. You're not gonna get the same amount of metabolites, right? So that's going to majorly impact your performance. And I know that I've certainly experienced this because during prep, like training at World's Gym Brisbane in the heat in Australia, right? Like it was freaking hot. Like we were like 35 degree days, you're just sweating like crazy, but you can train pretty well because you're in a warm environment. But then when you go to a gym like World's Gym Mount Gravatt or a gym that is highly air conditioned and it's probably, what do you reckon it's Jack in there, Jack? Like 20 degrees or... Yeah. Or I don't know. Just a cold country. Yeah, or a cold country, whatever it is, right? It's that it's that temperature gradient and actually going from one extreme to the other. You're like, "Whoa, my body is not used to this." And you definitely will experience that vasoconstriction and 
man, it's just really hard to match numbers because if you're not getting an adequate amount of blood and fluid and oxygen and all these nutrients to your exercising muscles, how can you expect to train the same? It's really, I found it really freaking tough to get a pump in a cold environment and a cold air conditioned gym compared to when I was in a warm gym. And I just, I felt much weaker and like it, it almost hurt. Do you know what I mean, Jack? And you're going pee the entire time, right? Because if all of the blood is redirecting to your core, that's gonna put more pressure on your kidneys, right? And then you're gonna be going pee more often too. So you're gonna uh, slightly dehydrate yourself a little bit. So yeah, totally know what you mean. And I think that it is even more amplified when you are in a dieting phase, because like we spoke about in that podcast, right? Why do you always feel cold when you're dieting, it's because you're, again, vasoconstriction and you're not releasing as much heat from your extremities, blood's redirected to your core as well. So one, you're already kind of cold and then you put yourself in an even colder environment. So yeah, most certainly. And then do you think that would influence your ability to expend energy, like expend total amount of calories compared to if you were in a hot environment? I think it would be minute, but it would be definitely interesting to do a study where you basically have people who train in a warmer environment versus cold examine muscle gain Mm -hmm. because i mean mechanical tension is going to be the main principle for hypertrophy and i mean i don't think that would really change in a warm versus cold it might just take you a bit longer to warm up Mm -hmm. but we know that metabolites are one factor in terms of muscle gain it's definitely not the most important but um, blood blood flow and metabolites kind of go hand in hand so potentially that might be an area of research yeah but i also think yeah it wouldn't be hugely significant but i think there might be a slight decrease to be honest in total energy expended especially if you weren't able to lift the same amount of weights for the same amount of reps because you're just not getting the same blood flow to those muscles in the same pump so you literally just can't train as hard if you're not used to training in a super cold air-conditioned gym compared to like a nice warm gym or a nice open gym so might be a little bit different there but yeah i also remember brad i think he did it brad schofield did a research on cold therapy after a workout because some people do cold water immersion for recovery and he did it i think he did it within the post-training window and they observed trends towards muscle like detriments to muscle gain through Mm. that which makes sense but that's obviously not the same as training in the cold yeah yeah definitely a little bit different (laughs) but yeah like don't there are detriments to cold water immersion post-training so Mm -hmm. i would avoid that yeah some people do do it for recovery yeah it's a bit it's so mixed isn't it because like one it just it just interferes with the muscular adaptations because i think that cold water immersion it actually will decrease inflammation which some people could argue like okay cool you're less inflamed right you're going to recover faster but on the flip side we know that inflammation is a vital component for muscular adaptation and inducing muscular hypertrophy so you know there's two sides to that coin and I guess the very last thing to mention is that I know this question asker, they're currently going through a dieting phase. And that's something else to take into account too, is that if you are dieting, especially if you have low levels of body fat on you and you're probably near the end of your diet, you're probably going to feel the cold even more compared to someone who 
isn't dieting, especially someone who's in a surplus or someone, even if they are dieting, they might just have a bit more body fat on them because we have to remember that body fat is very insulating. And, uh, you know, if you're in a cold environment, you have more body fat on you, you're going to feel a little bit warmer compared to someone who doesn't have much body fat on them. So that, um, would impact if anything, that would actually impact your training performance in a positive way in a colder environment. You're going to feel more comfortable. Okay, guys, so moving on to this next one, Jack, what does it say? So this one says, how to maximize volume without destroying your gut. Prep is getting hard. <laughs> so what, what would be your recommendations? So it's, yeah, it's, it's a very individual question. And so for some people, like I guess myself, like I can eat as much volume as I want and my gut will be fine. Mm -hmm. So it's really going to depend on whether you you do have any IBS tendencies and whether there are certain foods that do set your gut off, like for example, FODMAP containing foods. So it's really gonna be looking at what foods can you handle in a sufficient bulk mm -hmm. versus what foods you can't. Yeah, I think that's definitely something to recognize. And you know, this is quite a common thing I feel like a lot of people might go through during a dieting phase because you know when calories are getting lower generally you do try to go toward those higher volume foods so that you feel more satiated you feel like you're eating more but generally these higher volume foods do come with a hell of a lot of fiber and before you know it right your fiber intake can start going upwards 50 60 70 grams depending on what you're eating and how much you're eating so that certainly can uh, cause some people some digestive mm. distress yeah, so when increasing fiber, it's important to do it slowly. And most people usually don't have an issue because they they do it gradually. Like over a dieting phase, you gradually get hungrier. You gradually change your food sources. It's not an it's not suddenly you're eating a kilo of potatoes versus 100 grams. So that could be something to change. So gradually increase it over time. Something else would be looking at your food selection. So. When you say volume and you're having like a bunch of uh, maybe like diet jelly with like queen's maple syrup over the top and then some i don't know protein powder like the common trend there is artificial sweeteners and sugar alcohols that could be setting you off mm -hmm. uh, as well so it would be discriminating between those sorts of foods versus okay having a bunch of pumpkin having a bunch of potato having uh, broccolini or cauliflower mm -hmm. like I would be I'd be more surprised if it was the latter that was making giving you a hard time two other things as well so it's going to depend on whether it's just having a lot of food in your stomach like you need to differentiate between okay my stomach's just full or am I actually getting GIT distress like mm -hmm. uh, bloating uh, flatulence diarrhea all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. to get into the details and yeah, that's, I think that's everything that was on my mind. <laughs> Flactulence is on your mind. No, but I think, I think that's great. Yeah, definitely differentiating there between, all right, is it fiber from fiber containing foods or could it potentially be artificial sweeteners? And we're not saying that artificial sweeteners are bad in any sense, right? Because the research just hasn't been able to conclusively conclude that. However, there's no denying that sometimes when, you know, people are eating a lot of 
you know, sugar-free Queen's maple syrup, right? I think it's right? safe to say that sugar alcohols do cause distress. Oh, yes. Sugar alcohols. Okay, so now we're differentiating between fiber, artificial sweeteners, and sugar alcohols. Um, but yeah, some things just set people off, man. It's it's true, right? Like, we all know that if we're, we are consuming a lot of these sugar-free but highly packed sugar alcohol foods, right? Diet jellies and, you know, a bunch of protein bars and all of these different things... Uh, man, it can cause some havoc. So, you know, look at your diet as a whole, but also sometimes consuming a hell of a lot of fiber too sometimes can cause people to stress, especially like considering where that fiber is coming from. Like if you're loading up your egg white omelets with like hella onions or something, you know, or like you are getting all of your carbohydrates from like cans of beans, right? Like some people just have issues with digesting those foods. So yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly about, you know, increasing that fiber intake gradually and like it's going to be different for everyone. Like I think you and I are both accustomed to pretty high fiber diets. We probably consume close to 60, 70 grams per day or so, but our guts have been accustomed to that over years. But there is no upper limit for fiber that's actually been defined. The un- like the bottom limits, like the minimum recommendations are around 25 grams for females, 30 grams for males, or around 14 grams per thousand calories. But there's no upper defined limit. However, we generally recommend probably not trying to exceed around 75 grams per day, just again, so you avoid this gastrointestinal upset. And also if you're consuming way too much fiber, it can actually impair some nutrient absorption too. So you want to watch out for that, especially if you're on a low calorie diet and you're still trying to maximize your micronutrients, you don't want some of those being grabbed by fiber and not being able to be absorbed. Uh, But potentially if you still want to consume high volume foods, but you don't want to have a lot of these sugar alcohols and you don't want to have a lot of artificial sweeteners and hella fiber, consider having foods that you can add more things like water to, ice, air. So I'm always going to be a big advocate for things like nice cream, right? Like put more popcorn, popcorn. air pop popcorn's amazing. Hit like hit up target, man, get a $15 air pop popcorn maker. That thing will change prep for you. Yeah. Things like air pop popcorn, nice cream, instead of just having a coffee, right? You could blend some coffee in the Nutribullet with some ice and some water. Same with, um, same with your pre-workout. You can make like yourself a slushy, you know, add more water to your oats god damn i see people with like oats that have gone through a drought okay (laughs) oats have the capacity to soak up so much water if you are dieting i swear to gosh take advantage of that Mm. okay (laughs) the trick is to cook it and then either leave it for a few hours or leave it in the fridge overnight and that'll retrograde the oats and make it thick but exactly (laughs) i think the important thing to add on here is that if you get to that stage of prep, you could eat a whole buffet and you'll still be hungry afterwards. Uh-huh. Like nothing is going to satiate you. So going through prep, especially the end phase of prep with the expectation that I'm never going to have that feeling mm-hmm. where I'm going to sit back after a meal and say, oh, I, I really feel really nice and satiated now. <laughs> I, I could just go to sleep. And that will come once you recover, go through that recovery period after prep. But just due to the hormonal aspect, aspect like of how of how your leptin and ghrelin is functioning mm-hmm. your body is in that stage where it wants all the nutrients it can get because it's it's a life or death situation because mm-hmm. you're starving your body 
So your body's just wanting nutrients and it's wanting to put on fat. So that's why you're going to be so hungry all the time. Mm-hmm. And you could eat anything you want and you would, you'd, it's only once you put on that body fat again that you'll become more satiated. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really good point. Recognize that it's normal. Like if you are going through a prep and you don't have a single signal from your body telling you like, hey, you know, you should eat or hey, you're a little bit hungry. I would argue maybe things aren't really working. Like, <laughs> like you obviously you can use these strategies to help yourself feel a bit more satiated. But yeah, you're not gonna feel like I've got no food focus whatsoever. You know, like I'm I'm so full. Like all these sort of things. So um, yeah, man, embrace it. Accept that like feeling a little bit hungry. It means that the plan is working right, and it's just a part prep especially near the end Mm. especially near the end so yeah Yeah, the the interesting thing is that it it is usually more correlated with body fat Mm -hmm. not necessarily the amount of food you're eating so like i guess for myself like i i've decreased my calories almost by 2,000 calories from the highest to the lowest and on most days i'm still fine Mm -hmm. and that's purely because my body fat isn't to that low extent where i'm going to be hungry all the time Mm -hmm. like I, like I was at 750 carb on my highest days. Now I'm at 350 on my lowest. That's not to mention the fat and protein that I've reduced too. Mm-hmm. And I'm still really fine. I, I went like six or seven hours without a meal because of due to time constraints. And bruh, I was fine. What about the muscle protein synthesis, bruh? <laughs> no, just kidding. Six hours. But... Uh, That's a really, really good point because just like you mentioned with the hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin, right? Ghrelin is secreted by our stomach and it makes us feel more hungry. Leptin helps us to feel more satiated, more full, uh, makes us more inclined to expend more energy and that's secreted by our fat cells. So if you have smaller or less fat cells, right, you're not going to be secreting as much leptin and you are going to feel hungrier. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully that helps. Um, But you know, yeah. (laughs) be smart about it (laughs) okay so we're now moving on to the last question for today so it says if you eat a watermelon with the pits in it do you have to take them all out to still have low calories so how i interpret this question is that if you're eating some sort of fruit right the entry on my fitness pal is that taking into account that this fruit has the seeds in it or is it assuming that you're going to take the seeds out so I don't think it matters because you wouldn't you wouldn't see the uh, seeds in the end result the next day anyway. <laughs> Extra fiber, man. <laughs> so seeds are very very resistant to digestion, mm-hmm. which is similar similar to nuts in that instance. So you would you wouldn't it would just act as like insoluble fiber or resistant mm-hmm. starch maybe. Probably not even that. It would just go straight through you, like yeah. eating a $2 coin. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's exact. <laughs> eating an apple seed is the exact same as eating a $2 no, coin. No, I don't apparently. advise that, people. <laughs> Please don't spend your money. Don't eat it. Um, unless you're buying food. But no, I think, I don't know though. I, I honestly don't know if the entries would include things like the seeds, but. I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. But at the same because time. Because we've got man, to remember how they calculate that fancy energy stuff Mm -hmm. they they use that don't they explode the food yeah they just (laughs) blow it up (laughs) why are you answering all my questions you asked me that question (laughs) does it explode (laughs) 
I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so what are you saying that, so like if they were trying to test the amount of energy in a watermelon or an apple, they just take a tiny bit of that food and then explode it and find out the calories in that? I thought, yes. I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if they use that technique still, but I, I remember learning that mm-hmm. that was how they calculate it. They, they, a more accurate way of saying that would be they measure the heat produced or mm-hmm. the energy produced from blowing shit on i don't know <laughs> we're gonna have to revise this how yeah i think we just did a podcast on this how cal- how calories are actually calculated but um what we're gonna have to go back and listen to that one and teach ourselves something <laughs> but I, I i think i know what you mean but what i would imagine is that i don't know i have a feeling they're probably not taking into account things like the apple seeds and mm. the watermelon seeds and the grape seeds and stuff like that but yeah the thing is, though, I just eat the whole thing. Like, I just eat the whole apple. Or I will eat a seed in an orange or whatever. Because, yeah. It's- I think, in theory, it's something that's nice to sort of look at and say, oh, did they consider this? But if you truly are worrying about the energy in the seed versus the fruit, <laughs> then I think you have too much time on your hands, yeah. maybe. And if it gives you any consolation, there's going to be less calories in the seed than the fruit itself. So yeah. don't worry about eating the seeds Mm -hmm. but be careful of the watermelon tree that might grow inside you from the seed or the vine i should say i remember reading that (laughs) that book as a kid oh my gosh um but yeah are do you eat the seeds i yeah i just eat it bruh and i don't don't worry about it i remember lawrence the other day he actually had some video about he was like the only thing left from my apple and he was just holding like these three seeds and i'm like bruh just eat it like it's the dose that makes the poison because you know how people say like oh you shouldn't eat apple seeds because they have cyanide in them right remember it is the dose that makes the poison you would have to eat hella apple seeds to actually die from cyanide poisoning so i'm just like Man, just eat the seeds, get a little bit of extra fiber. <laughs> it's probably still safe to say on here that don't eat the apple seeds just yeah. in case you get cyanide poisoning. Yeah. Thankfully, I have insurance. So, yeah, I hope no one dies from that recommendation. <laughs> I hope I don't die either from eating my apple seeds. But, um, yeah, man, I just, like, if you're weighing fruit, if you're weighing these things, like, just track it all as one thing. In the long run, it's not going to make a difference. Like the reason why you didn't achieve your diet goals, your body composition goals, isn't because you ate one extra apple seed or one extra watermelon seed or whatever, right? Like there's there's bigger things to concentrate on. So um, so yeah, just take that into account. But yeah, that was probably the last question for today. But what we always finish on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn? So I learned, I was listening to a good podcast with um, Jared Feather and Alberto Nunez about mini cuts. And Jared raised a good point that the, the mini cut period was, can be a useful time to reintroduce new movements. And we all know that new movements take a certain amount of time to develop the skill and actually start reaping strength gains that will correlate to Uh, muscle gain because a lot of the new strength correlated with a movement is going to be developing the movement pattern and get more getting more proficient at that movement pattern Mm -hmm. so having a period like the mini cut where you're not really going to be growing muscle anyway so developing developing those new motor patterns and then reaching that period when you finish the mini cut enter your gaining phase and then you can reap the benefits of that new movement from there yeah so that was on the revive stronger podcast i thought that was such an in like i thought that was pretty damn clever too Mm. yeah it makes a lot of sense 
And uh, yeah, so developing those neural adaptations. And also it might just feel kind of nice psychologically because especially when you go through a really aggressive dieting phase, like a mini cut, right? Like we're not saying that performance is gonna go in the tank, but it is likely that you're probably gonna plateau, potentially regress on some movements, especially pushing movements like an OHP, a bench, purely because you don't not have the same amount of glycogen in your muscles that you're used to. You don't have the same amount of fluid in your muscles. You don't have the same amount of available energy as you're used to. So it might actually be kind of motivating Ajax if you were to start a new movement and start almost mm. a new training program. And, and I like, did that this week and it felt good. Yeah, because you're like, man, I'm getting stronger in a mini cut. Yeah. <laughs> this is epic. <laughs> yeah, especially for people like me and like where they get quite concerned or it puts them down if they lose strength, mm-hmm. like tangible strength. So yeah, it's, it's nice. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, just remind yourself as well, even if you don't implement this and you know, you're going through a dieting phase and you do plateau on a movement or you can't shoulder press as much or something, it's very unlikely that you're actually losing muscle guys. Okay. It's purely just because you do not have the available fuel in order to push that same amount of weight. But once you exit that dieting phase, that's like one of my favorite phases of training coming out of a diet and starting to train harder again, like strength gains are just like almost exponential. You feel on fire every session, Mm. at least I do. So it's pretty amazing. feels good. Awesome. And what did you learn this week? I learned this really cool thing about human breast milk. So I listened to this awesome podcast on the podcast channel, Found My Fitness. It's by Dr. Rhonda Patrick. And uh, she did this podcast on human breast milk, covered a whole bunch of different things. But I learned that human breast milk has this thing in it called, they're called HMOs. So HMOs stands for human milk oligosaccharides. And they actually are the third greatest contributor to breast milk as a whole. They actually have, there's more HMOs in breast milk than there is protein. Like the two greatest things in human breast milk are lactose, the sugar, and also fatty acids. But the third greatest contributor is HMOs. So human milk oligosaccharides. Oligosaccharides are chains of carbohydrates, but they're actually non-digestible. So there are these chains of non-digestible carbohydrates. And you know, when they were studying human breast milk, they're like, why the heck are these like non-digestible carbohydrates such a great contributor to human breast milk? Like there's more of this stuff in here than protein. Like wouldn't protein be more important? But it's so cool because when we think about a non-digestible carbohydrate, right? Think about something that we consume, right? We consume fiber, we consume resistant starch. So these HMOs are actually traveling through the baby and they're actually helping to contribute to the baby's gut microbiome, right? And help with its immune system, which is so freaking cool so that that can start to develop from a very, very young age. So. I just think that is so freaking cool. And I'm going to have to tell your dad. So Jack's dad is a gastroenterologist. We're actually having him on the podcast next week for a special guest interview, which should be really cool for anyone wanting to learn all about gut health. So stay tuned for that one. But yeah, these HMOs in human breast milk, I just find it fascinating. And there's over 200 different types that they know. So 200 different strains of non-digestible carbohydrates that help to contribute to the baby's gut microbiome. And yeah, and just one more thing, uh, you know, it's pretty interesting that there's more of these things than protein in human breast milk. And 
The reason why human breast milk actually has a lower protein component compared to other animals like a cow is because a baby takes much longer to develop and grow compared to another animal. Like imagine a cow, right? A cow requires more protein in its breast milk because it's growing at a much faster rate and it's growing into a much larger animal compared to a baby who takes its sweet time. So yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. So that was the end of this episode, episode 86. Thanks for listening, guys. And again, if you enjoyed it, please remember to repost it on your social media. Tag myself, tag Tiara, tag TBD. Also, if you enjoyed the episode, please also remember to leave a review on iTunes if you're listening on the iTunes podcast app. And stay tuned for the episode in the weeks to come. 